My friend Peter Hayes has some wild stories. I had to break out of that house arrest, which I did, uh, but it was not easy. It, it involved quite high-level orchestration to get out of that isolated guest house with barbed wire and guards with bayonets. Yeah, the one I'm thinking of starts with Peter receiving a mysterious message from North Korea. You remember telegrams? Peter has overestimated my age, but I'll let it go. Back in the day, Peter was an expert on nuclear energy issues. One of his wildest stories begins when he started receiving telegrams from a very unlikely place. I would get a telegram each year from one Kim Jong-sun in North Korea saying, would you please come to North Korea? Peter doesn't remember exactly when the telegram started, but it was sometime in the 1980s after he published his first book. The book was a warning about the risk of nuclear war breaking out in Korea. And the man sending Peter the telegrams from North Korea was Kim Jong-sun, a very high-ranking member of North Korea's ruling Communist Party, the Workers' Party of Korea. Kim Jong-sun had quite the reputation. Diplomats really liked working with him. I've seen Kim described as a, quote, hard-drinking partying buddy of Kim Jong-il, a ladies' man, and a devotee of high living, end quote. Ain't no party like a workers' party party, I guess. Kim wasn't a diplomat. He didn't even have an official position in the foreign ministry. But Peter knew he couldn't pass up this invitation. I got one of these telegrams and I sent back a reply saying, yes, love to come, when? Silence for a month. And then the telegram came back returned. The post office didn't know that there was a North Korea and where Pyongyang was, so they'd sent it to Seoul in South Korea, who'd sat on it for a month whilst they were trying to figure out what this was about. I went down to the post office and said, look, you idiots, you know, just like Americans think that Australia is Austria, there is actually a place called North Korea, and you do need to send the telegram there, please. I just want to state, for the record, that postal workers work really hard. But I do get why Peter was a little frustrated. If you're not an expert on nuclear energy, which, you know, Peter is, it's easy to think of North Korea as some faraway, almost mythical country, not somewhere where you would actually want to send a letter or a telegram. A small miracle happened, and Peter's message somehow managed to get through. And within a couple of days, I had a reply this time saying, come, come now. Why do you think it was so important to the North Koreans? I mean, why, why do you think you were able to leverage? They wanted to build a bridge of confidence. They wanted to build some trust and to demonstrate that they were willing to cooperate with Americans if they changed their hostile policy. And this was an opportunity to do that. Not many people think opportunity when they think about North Korea. But Peter, he saw an opportunity here. He knew as well as anybody that North Korea was a real country full of real people with real needs. He knew they were dealing with an energy crisis. He knew they had a nuclear weapons program. He knew they wanted energy independence. And he knew no one wants nuclear Armageddon. So he was willing to bet that if he met with Kim Jong-sun face-to-face, there was a chance they could turn this opportunity into a concrete step toward lasting peace. It may sound a little quixotic. Because it is. Because Peter was headed to North Korea to go tilting at windmills. Why would they do anything they do to try to build a nuclear power plant? They don't need a nuclear power plant. Yes, I think it's time we talked about regime change in North Korea. 
But what, what, what do you actually talk about with a, and, and I don't mean this insultingly, a madman murderous dictator? <laughs> actually, we talk about basketball. We have a very strange situation in that country. You've got to remember that I'm speaking about diplomacy here and be diplomatic. <laughs>
Many Koreans hold the great powers responsible for what happened to their country, and many believe that it doesn't have to be this way. In Peter's view, that was Kim's goal, a true lasting peace in his homeland. He was a supremely realistic geostrategic thinker, which is why he wanted to end the Korean War, make amends with the United States, and actually detach themselves from the orbit that they're in between two black stars alternating, uh, you know, this uh, between China and, and the Soviet Union. Kim was living proof of something a lot of Americans don't understand. While North Korea is ruled by a single party, that party isn't a monolith. We may not get to hear or see their debates, but there is disagreement, even when it comes to how to deal with the West. We'll never know who Kim Jong-sun had to convince or how he did it. But somehow, he got permission to invite Peter to visit. I don't like the North Korean regime. I find it extremely onerous to go there. Uh, the monitoring is very intense. The cigarette smoke and the alcohol is, is uh, very difficult to deal with. And your interpersonal space is much closer in Korean culture than in American or Western culture. So that smoke is right in your face. It's not across the room. This is like three people smoking within six feet of you all the time. The cars are pretty nice, though. There was a red Mercedes-Benz waiting for me. One of the little sedans, blue sedans, uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs cars, read a party. Honestly, I thought Peter might have misremembered about this until he sent us a video from one of his trips to North Korea. There it was, a dark red Benz. One of these cars arrived at Peter's hotel to pick him up. He got in, it drove him out of the city, and then it stopped. I was taken out of the first Mercedes, put in the second one, and they told the first guy to leave in no uncertain and very unfriendly terms, I have to tell you. The second car pulled away and headed toward their destination, Kim Jong-sun's Dacha. Out in a classic North Korean landscape, surrounded by pine trees with his personal staff, and we proceeded to talk for about four or five hours. Um, his style was to give a three-hour lecture, and there would be a tougher-than-thou lecture with the recording button on, because everyone's recorded, including the senior figures by the regime for political correctness. And he would just drop a hint as to where he was heading at the very end. You had to listen really carefully. Listening carefully to North Korean officials is a skill. Peter had to just sort of endure the propaganda. Stuff Kim knew was propaganda. Actually, stuff Kim knew that Peter knew that Kim knew was propaganda. But Peter listened and eventually figured out the real reason he was there. North Korea was struggling to supply its 20 million citizens with power. They wanted the West to help them build nuclear power plants. And when you think about it, of course they did. North Korea was small and politically isolated and relied on the Soviet Union for most of its needs. With aid from Russia drying up, the power had to come from somewhere, ideally inside North Korea itself. So, what if instead of threatening to destroy North Korea over its nuclear program, we work together to solve their energy crisis? If all this sounds too good to be true, well, it was. While we're sitting there and I'm explaining to him that their grid is too small to ever have a light water reactor and they'd risk a, a meltdown if they did, 
the lights went out, completely dark, you know, grid failure. And he proceeded as if nothing had happened for nearly 20 minutes, telling me that everything, you know, that everything was perfect with their grid and they would have no problems. At that point, Peter could have written off the nuclear power plant idea, Kim himself, and frankly, the whole country as nuts. He could have said, well, good luck with that. Could you please threaten another driver into taking me back to my hotel? But there he was, in the room with a senior official of the Workers' Party, a drinking buddy of North Korea's elite, who, in his own verbose way, was asking him for help. Peter wasn't the president of the United States. He couldn't just give Kim a couple of nuclear power plants. And Kim didn't have much actual authority either. At some level, they were just two guys sitting in what I assume was a very smoky and dimly lit room, searching for a way to bridge the gap between North Korea and the West. After that visit, Peter and Kim kept in touch. There was no phone line to North Korea. AT&T, then the monopoly phone supplier, uh, was was not allowed to have a phone service to North Korea because of the sanctions. So my brother would divert my call from from San Francisco to Australia, to his number, to the number in North Korea, and it would go through. I never got billed for those calls because they weren't on any existing phone system where you got billed. Spoken like a true NGO executive. North Korea continued to press for nuclear power plants, and in 1994, the U.S. actually agreed to help build them. As part of that deal, the United States agreed to provide North Korea with nuclear reactors. But actually hooking those reactors up to North Korea's crumbling energy grid, that was a different matter entirely. The problem was the DPRK's electricity grid was both A, too small, and B, not in good enough shape to accept the power from those reactors. So if those reactors had ever gone online, they would not have been able to operate without being directly connected to the South Korean grid. That's energy expert David Von Hippel. You can't swing a cat on this podcast without hitting a Von Hippel. Pretty quickly, the deal between the United States and North Korea had started to fall apart for the same reasons the deal between the U.S. and Iran would fall apart. That's when Kim Jong-sun reached back out to Peter, and he in turn reached out to David. The deal might be dead, but I think Kim wanted to show, on a fundamental level, that collaboration between the United States and North Korea was still possible. So they arranged another exchange. They sent three technicians, one controller and one party guy to Berkeley, California. And we also took them to Washington and we did trainings at the World Bank. We did renewable energy trainings. We took them to the wind turbine facility. Of course, they didn't travel alone. One member of the delegation in particular stuck out in David's memory. He was this young, wiry, fierce man. He was uh, the minder for, for their delegation. So taught as a wire. A minder is kind of like a chaperone, but instead of high schoolers, you're monitoring North Koreans traveling outside the country. And instead of preventing them from dancing too close. He was making sure well, no one, none of the North Koreans who came to the United States were speaking to anybody they shouldn't have or saying anything they shouldn't have. You say minder, I say snitch. Remember, not everyone in North Korea was crazy about the idea of cooperating with the United States. 
By this point, it's 1997, about a decade after Peter started receiving telegrams from Pyongyang. Now he and Luba were hosting a delegation of North Korean engineers at their house for Thanksgiving. Frankly, the food around Thanksgiving is so bland compared to the kimchi and the you know, spiciness of Korean food. And here they were having, you know, mashed potatoes with gravy. I thought, well, <laughs> if it was a problem, they didn't let, let us know. There were Peter and Luba passing the cranberry sauce to some guys from a country many Americans said was hell-bent on destroying us. You can probably understand why it felt like anything was possible in that moment. There was a sense that there was an opening, that there was an opening uh, within North Korea. And Peter was able to make something happen in that opening. Before the delegation returned to the DPRK, they signed an agreement with the Nautilus Institute. A decade of discussions, telegrams, phone calls, and false starts had paid off. Peter was going to take a team to North Korea and show them, through a working demonstration, what real energy independence in the DPRK could look like. The hypothesis was, it's possible to do business with North Koreans. And the underlying assumption was, it's possible to do business with North Koreans if you do what you say you're going to do. Nothing more, nothing less. In May 1998, Peter took a team of five people, including David Von Hippel, to North Korea. Their mission, go to the tiny village of Unhari, assess its energy needs, and then meet those needs by constructing a series of wind turbines. The turbines were not going to solve North Korea's energy crisis. But at a time when neither side had any faith in the other, they could serve as a proof of concept. They were a demonstration that it was possible for people from outside the DPRK to work productively with North Koreans. North Korea was desperately poor and isolated. For Peter and his crew, this meant that they had to ship literally everything and anything they might need with them. And we had to send a small Ace hardware store with us because there's no hardware store down the road. Everything they could conceivably need, from the blades of the windmills all the way down to the spare screwdrivers, were purchased and packed into a shipping container in Berkeley. The container went to South Korea and then to a North Korean port where it just sat around until someone got a phone call. There was only one operating crane in Nampo, and it took a very high party official calling the operator and saying, move the ship that is now being unloaded, move our ship in there, take that one shipping container off and, and do it now. Because our colleagues from the United States are arriving tonight. Like I said, Kim Jong-sun had connections. The team traveled to Unhari, a farming village of roughly 2,000 people. On the coast of the DPRK, it's, it's fairly flat because it's mostly reclaimed land. So, so it's, it's tidal marshes that have been filled in for agriculture, growing mostly rice um, and some other things like, like cabbage. Literally, we put our wind farm in a cabbage patch. There was electric power in Unhari, but North Korea's nuclear power plants were old. We're talking pre-Korean War, pre-World War II, Japanese colonial era infrastructure. The grid was so unreliable that the main source of energy in the village was just plain old coal. And that coal would be delivered to a depot 
basically just a, a house and a yard in, along the main road, and and they would they would make briquettes, uh, coffee can sized briquettes. So this was the fuel that they used for their stove. David knew this because he went door to door asking villagers how they got energy and how they used it. Before they could power the village, his team had to learn what they were actually powering. And in order to ensure randomness, I, I whittled some dice out of a spare piece of wood and, and we, we rolled those dice in order to um, figure out which households we were going to visit. Knock, knock. Oh, hi, don't mind me. I'm just the first American you've ever met coming to take scrupulous notes about the objects in your house. I would look around and say, you know, do you use your, your refrigerator? No, we have it, but we don't use it. It's not, it's not plugged in. And each house had a, had a TV. Every house had a TV because that's a major means of communication between the state and, and the people. Along with a picture of Kim Jong-il and Kim Il-sung. Canted to look down at you, just like pictures of Jesus in, in Catholic households. I'd look up in the corner and there's, there's a speaker up there. And I said, was that speaker associated with your radio? No. Is it associated with the TV? No. What is it? Well, it comes from the state. Oh, that's interesting. The purpose of it is so that the, the, the authorities can communicate with each household immediately. Let's just sit for a minute and think about how unbearable the last several years would have been if every American household featured an invasive government speaker. Anywhere near your house, congratulations. Your house just went down 75% in value. And they say the noise causes cancer. You tell me that one, okay? And of course, it's like a graveyard for birds. We really dodged a bullet there. Anyway, David eventually completed his survey with the help of some translators. Both sides, the Americans and the North Koreans, had one guy with them who spoke the other side's language. If neither of those guys was around, you had to find two other guys, an American and a North Korean who could talk to each other in Chinese. So you need to be familiar with how tight they are now. Communication was crucial. This was not a photo op. This was an active construction site. The language barrier complicated what was already a very complicated task. Ever try to manually assemble a wind turbine? Yeah, me neither. And grab a couple of cables and pull on them sideways. Well, no cranes were available. So we built the first level, six feet tall. And then we stood on that to build the next level. And then we stood on that to build the next level and so on. And, and this meant that, that uh, uh, somebody from our team would be working with a North Korean engineer standing together <laughs> on top of, this, top of this thing with very little support and assembling with, with bolts and, and nuts and, and pieces of metal, this, this tower. Well, these are crane signals, and I do them without thinking about them. Yeah. We sometimes had to slow them down, say, you know, wait, 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 you know, you gotta be a little more safety conscious about that because their safety culture and our safety culture are not the same. I'll say, David and Peter are both adamant that the North Koreans were very good engineers. Still, listening to the recording Peter sent us, it sounds like American safety culture and North Korean drinking culture were occasionally at odds. We're going to raise the tower. We're going to raise the tower. This is tea? This is tea. When I see amber fluids. (laughs) Okay. Um... 
The placement of the grounding wire, which would keep lightning from destroying the turbines, also caused some high tension. Their engineers wanted to do it North Korean practice, which was to ground it uh, in the powerhouse. And they took offense at our insistence, and they threatened to kill us if we insisted. I'm not kidding. They were very angry because this was a insult to their national pride and, and uh, really, uh, I guess you'd have to say, their manhood. I tell you this because this moment could have been the end of the story. The way Peter tells it, it could have been the end of Peter and David. Work stopped, and at this point, it looked like the best-case scenario was simply getting out of North Korea. But Peter didn't walk away. He knew how to resolve problems like this in North Korea. They had a delegation, and I went out that night. Now, I don't drink, but that night I got very drunk. Uh, I'd had to, because that's how you work these issues in North Korea. And again, I said to, to the counterpart, look, if someone gets killed by this, you're going to blame us. We're not going to let you do that. So here's what we're going to do. Peter agreed to do things the North Korean way, as long as his counterpart would swear that nobody would be allowed into the powerhouse. When Peter and his team returned, they would bring with them safety manuals from all over the world that explained why and how to ground the wire in the actual ground. We'll even translate them into Korean for you, but that's what we're going to do. And if that's acceptable, that's how we'll proceed. And that's how we resolved that particular crisis where they were literally threatening to kill my engineers and we were threatening to leave the next day. Work did proceed. The grounding wire was grounded in the North Korean way and the team returned six months later as planned with strict safety protocols. But this wasn't the last time the two sides would butt heads. In fact, this wasn't even the last disagreement over the damn grounding wire. One day, as the windmills continued to rise, the crews took a lunch break. When it was time to get back to work, their protocol demanded that someone go and check on the grounding wire to ensure there wasn't a current going through it. But on this afternoon, some big-shot official from the Korean Workers' Party was there. He wanted to skip that step. This is another moment where Peter's years of dealing with North Korean officials, and I am guessing the fact that he is well over six feet tall, paid off. I said, look, engineer, uh, I think his name was Lee, I can't remember, We're happy to do that, but only on one condition, that you go over and piss on the grounding wire. If you're willing to do that, we're willing to proceed without a safety check. And he lost face in front of his team as a result. The engineer, whose name may or may not have been Lee, decided to let the safety check proceed. At least, that's Peter's version of the story. For the record, most of the interactions that happened during these trips seemed significantly friendlier. One of the engineers that I was working with, the North Korean engineers, spent some time in, in Japan as a kid, and he learned a little English from watching American cartoons while he was in Japan. So, you know, we'd be, we'd be gesticulating, put the bolt in here while we've got these two eyelets lined up. And I taught him the phrase, piece of cake. So, so when we get it done, we'd say, piece of cake. <laughs> Hearing their accounts of this project, I can't help but feel that you have to have someone like Peter to make a project like this happen in the first place. But you also need someone like David to make sure they get home alive. Both of these stories, though, point to something important. It required serious trust to get these windmills built. It didn't matter if you were 100 feet in the air installing dangerous electrical equipment or down on the ground risking summary execution over some safety protocol. You had to know who you were dealing with, trust their commitment to the project, and trust them to trust you. Everyone had to hold up their end of the bargain. 
you know, you build trust with North Koreans by doing what you say you're going to do and speaking the truth. And if the truth hurts, they need to hear it. And they know that. And they'll respect you for that. You know, once they realize we weren't there to take advantage of them, we weren't there to to make fools of them, we were there to help them. Once they realize that, we got along really well. Oh, and that wiry hard-ass who had accompanied the North Koreans? Their minder? The snitch? In Pyongyang, David even managed a little sports diplomacy with him. By the time we left in 2000, he was playing frisbee with us in the lobby of the Koryo Hotel in Pyongyang. By the time David was tossing a frisbee with that wiry hard ass, it was 2000, and the Unhari wind turbine project was done. There were now seven windmills standing in a cabbage patch, providing power to a rural North Korean village. We did a rural energy survey. We put together a powerhouse. We installed seven little wind turbines. We connected a, a number of households and a clinic to this system. That was pretty remarkable for, for 16 days of work in the DPRK. Seven wind turbines supplying reliable electric power to a village that had been running on coal and a prayer. Well, it's a communist country, maybe not so much praying. There was also an eighth wind turbine powering a well, providing Unhari with much-needed drinking water. It seems like it, it. there was a moment when such a project was possible and a moment when it felt that this kind of approach could really move the needle in the larger context. The project was brilliant. I mean, it was brilliant. What's been extremely frustrating is that the, the needle doesn't seem to get pushed in North Korea. Yeah, this business is frustrating because now comes the part where I burst your bubble. The story does not end with Kim Jong-il and Bill Clinton sitting down and agreeing to a windmills, not nukes deal. Instead, we just keep seeing the same old cycle repeat. A new missile launched being called a breakthrough, a successful test of an intercontinental ballistic missile. North Korea's official statement celebrating the launch, promising to root out what they see as the U.S. threat. And then, just hours ago, a physical response from the U.S. and South Korea. Each country firing a short-range missile in a coordinated event. Those Peter's North Korean collaborator, Kim Jong-sun, died in a car wreck in 2003. Born during the Japanese occupation, Kim died without ever seeing the thing he wanted most a reunited Korea. Peter got a MacArthur Genius Award for his work in Unhari. That's a really big deal. 20 years later, though, he says he's just as worried as ever. As our nuclear use in Northeast Asia project showed last year, in short order, we were able to come up with 24 different plausible pathways to nuclear war in Northeast Asia. We stopped there because there's no point in coming up with more pathways. I don't know about you, but for me, one pathway is plenty. If that's not enough of a downer, I have to tell you, without any way of getting replacement parts into North Korea, David is pretty much convinced the windmills no longer work. The Unhari project did not usher in a new era of cooperation in wind power. And the DPRK is not 
actually traditionally been self-sufficient in many things, but they want to be. And renewable energy works for that because they're using their own resources, wind and solar resources, for example, to, to power their country. Even on a micro level, with solar photovoltaic panels becoming inexpensive, you've seen them blooming on patios of, of high-rises in the DPRK. And while the divide between North Korea and the West still feels enormous, Peter and David are living proof that you can cross it. I think that the Lunhari the project really did show that A, it was possible to work with North Koreans, and, and B, they were very interested in, in these topics. They were interested in, in taking up the opportunity to work on these technical topics with people from the international community. So it, it's really possible just through goodwill and, and examples of friendship to change people's minds. Peter told us that Kim first reached out to him because he wanted to build a bridge of confidence. The thing is, bridges, they go both ways. In the early 1990s, a lot of people inside the North Korean system stuck their necks out to strike a deal with the United States. After that deal collapsed, Kim Jong-sun was willing to stick his neck out again. I think he wanted to show other North Koreans that cooperation with the United States was possible. And if Kim couldn't get nuclear reactors from the U.S. government, he was going to try to get windmills from Peter. This was a really special moment. I don't know when something like it is going to happen again, if ever. But I do know that there are a lot of people on both sides who do want it to happen. And I, I really hope that when it does come, there will be people like Kim and Peter, Luba and David. People who are willing to take a chance and tilt at windmills. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeffrey Lewis, and this is The Reason We're All Still Here. It's executive produced by me, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. Special thanks to the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. This episode was produced by Stephen Wood, Kelsey Albright, and Olivia Canny. It was written by Stephen Wood and me. Story editing from Sarah Joyner. Fact-checking by Charles Richter. Technical direction and engineering by Nick Dooley. Original music by Andy Chug. Additional production support from Gemma Castelli-Foley. Show art by Ronan Wood and Anton Mariniak. Special thanks to Jessica Varnum, Christine Ragassa, Megan Larson, and Maggie Taylor. Hello, listeners. I'm Gabrielle Sierra, host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, the world of international affairs can feel overwhelming and complex, but it also shapes our lives every single day. So it pays to know what's going on out there. Why It Matters is a foreign policy podcast for the rest of us. And with a little bit of humor and a lot of questions, we're here to break down global topics and bring the world home to you. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters, wherever you listen.